This episode of The Protocol is sponsored by the Stellar Community Fund. And the answer is like complex systems fail in complex ways. So you might worry that like, well, you know, one AVS gets slashed, but there's a big overlap between the operators and this AVS and another one. And then suddenly that second AVS kind of also ends up with some slashing conditions. And now maybe a third AVS ends up, right? So you can get this kind of contagion from mm-hmm. one AVS to another if you set things up wrong. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of high risk scenario, now suddenly you've got a bunch of operators who are also Ethereum operators who are suddenly being, you know, penalized for their behavior that has nothing to do with Ethereum. And so if that ripples back into Ethereum, now we have to worry that somehow, uh, you know, Ethereum is trying to set up its own set of incentives, but those incentives have nothing to do with the incentives in the AVSs that live on top. And so at least in principle, you could have problems. Dive deep into the blockchain realm with the Protocol Podcast with Coindesk founding editor of the Protocol Newsletter, Brad Count, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to the Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Cowan here with my co-hosts Margot Nykirk and Sam Kessler. So excited to dive into today's show, the latest news and developments in technology behind crypto and blockchains. First, please do not forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on Coindesk.com. And let's get right into it. We did have a lot of good stories today uh, that we were thinking about covering. We had to pick a couple, but one of them was Vitalik's Buterin's 30th birthday, uh, and he's already created an entire blockchain ecosystem. How many people do that before age 30? Anyway, all right, let's get into it. Our first story here, Lido Dow rebukes Layer Zero by endorsing rivals Wormhole Axelar for Crypto Bridge. It's it's quite a mouthful, Uh, Sam. This is your story. A lot of words that I didn't know five years ago, but um, yeah, <laughs> tell yeah, us a lot of words. <laughs> but it's a, a fascinating story. Tell us, t- you know, just give us a the eighth graders version of this story. Yeah, a lot of words, a lot of companies here. The story itself, I think, it's kind of just entertaining, but it gets to some like core ideas and concepts around DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which are these you know organizing groups on blockchains that kind of govern protocols like Lido, the liquid staking protocol on Ethereum. And they do this governance by tokens. Um, They have tokens that they distribute to members of the blockchain community that they live on. And those tokens can usually double as votes in some sort of a governance system. So Lido DAO, you know, Lido, which is again, liquid staking protocol on Ethereum, one of the biggest protocols in crypto generally, I think the biggest DeFi protocol it needed to find a new bridge to, you know, shuttle tokens from the Ethereum blockchain where the Lido protocol lives and its staked ETH Steeth token, which is one of the biggest tokens on Ethereum, lives to other blockchains. And this thing happened recently where Layer Zero, which is the biggest bridge provider in this sort of like competitive turf battle between infrastructure providers that do this bridging, they released a product that allows users to do this thing that I was talking about, moving Steeth to a bunch of other blockchains. But they did this apparently without talking first to the Lido DAO, without submitting a proposal, going through this whole due diligence process that the Lido DAO says it's supposed to do. 
And as a result, Lado Dao got really, really pissed off. And they later had a new election where they kind of like surreptitiously, you know, dis- disgraced, admonished um, this Layer Zero bridge and said, hey, from now on, we're going to give our formal endorsement to this other bridge for bridging tokens from the Ethereum blockchain to specifically in this case, the Binance BNB chain. So they endorsed in this vote, they being Lido Dao in this vote, two of Layer Zero's biggest rivals, those rivals being Wormhole and Axelar. I know that's like a big jumble of things. Again, I hope that cleared it up somewhat, but I'm sure you guys have questions around what we're talking about here and why it's important. I'll leave it at that for now. I think this is really interesting because it kind of gets into what, you know, a lot of people at Coindesk here cover is this decentralized theater, right? Like you have mm-hmm. the mechanisms to set up a DAO. And yet, for one, I guess, who are the people who are making decisions to override the DAO? And two, what's the point of having a DAO then if these kind of decisions can't be made in a decentralized way, right? Where does this go? Yeah, that's like the interesting, the core thing about this, which is like layer zero They, you know, Ethereum is a permissionless protocol. Anybody can build on top of it. And Layer Zero created a bridge. One of the beautiful things about this system is that they're able to kind of create this thing where they lock up staked ETH in a smart contract on Ethereum and then reissue it on other blockchains in a wrapped form. That's how a bridge works. They're able to do that without permission from anybody. But they didn't ask for permission. And now they're getting in trouble for it. So Layer Zero will will probably say, um, hey, that's screwed up. Like, you know, the whole point of blockchains is that I'm, you know, open source permissionlessness, I'm able to do something like this. And I don't have to go to anybody for permission. And they do point to specific instances on the Lido DAO, where some of their competitors, specifically Axlar, did something like this, where they launched a bridge without like submitting a formal proposal that got voted on by the community, like the community apparently wanted in the layer zero case. Axlar went and did this in the past for the Cosmos ecosystem. So they're currently issuing tokens from Ethereum to Cosmos. And they, it sounds like behind the scenes, got some sign off in some offline process from some Lido DAO committee to do the same sort of thing that Layer Zero was doing. And nobody was pissed in that case. So it's very confusing, like what the rules are. So it's immature. It's, there's a lot to talk about. You know, what does this say about the, the state of competition among yeah. all these bridge, bridge projects, right? I mean, it's pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, one way to look at this is even though you see Lido Dow throwing its weight, its you know name and credibility, reputation behind two of these other bridge providers, which is kind of like a tacit endorsement of their technical, um, so, you know, their security because bridges are the main things that tech like typically get hacked, and so they're saying, hey, two of Layer Zero's competitors are better in this case. They're more decentralized, also, you know, better for creating a plug and play solution that doesn't lock people into certain kinds of bridges. Anyway, they say that these competitors are better. But it also underscores the fact that Layer Zero has, I I don't have specific numbers, but they have enough of the bridge market share. They are the market leader. They have enough of that market now that two of its biggest rivals that are between themselves rivals are willing to team up with one another to create a proposal to bridge tokens that don't lock people into specific ecosystems. So yeah, this is almost a, you know, sign that Layer Zero might be on its way to winning this really competitive race, at least as it stands right now and as it's been defined right now. Yeah. I mean, especially with Lido, you know, becoming such a huge force too. But, uh, you know, and we've talked about, I mean, since last year about just 
how many blockchains there are of a sudden and more all the time. These bridges are going to play such a key role in connecting yeah. it all, right? Yeah. And what does an endorsement mean in this world, too? Because you've got a bunch of protocols that live on top of all these ecosystems that are now throwing endorsements behind different infrastructure that anybody can use, whether it's endorsed or not. So I think that these also proves as a test case, like, hey, open source, again, permissionless, you can use anything, you can build anything. What does it mean for certain things that do the same thing as other things to have an endorsement from a credible project like are we specifically in this case going to see more traffic flowing through the infrastructure that lido dow has endorsed does that matter they've all got their bffs yeah yeah um, and is that good <laughs> i mean what's decentralization if it's all buddy buddy all right, behind well, the scenes let's that is a that's a cool story and thanks for explaining it to us sam all right margo uh the next story coming your way is your story um as blockchains push toward decentralization, these people serve as ultimate guardians. Uh, this story started off as the Polygon Protocol Council story that you were doing, Margot, and uh, it's such a cool one. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. So, well, this all started because, you know, as many know, Polygon is on its roadmap to redefine the blockchain and its ecosystem. And as part of that, they have decided to create a Polygon Protocol Council. So I was like, what is a protocol council? So I just started to ask questions like, is there a need for this? Like, what is the purpose behind this? Like some skepticism. And I think like as the reporting went on, my ultimate conclusion was like, okay, I understand why there there's a, a council like this that's created. So what is this council? Basically, it's made up of, this specific council is made up of 13 members that are there to maintain the security of the protocol. There are two instances where they sort of come into play. The first one is is through the like normal governance process where there's some kind of protocol change that needs to be made to the network. And they're involved in that governance framework. And they sign off on implementing those changes after it's approved by the community and goes through various stages. But also in the event that there is a major, you know, a hack or something that needs immediate attention, this council can be called on to implement those changes and override this governance framework. And so they framed it as sort of a way of a step in the right direction towards full decentralization because the ultimate goal is for the blockchain to run itself, for the protocol just to control its own code, while the other end of the spectrum is having some like some other protocols, some of the members on Protocol Council have told me, some, there's some other protocols that have foundations that like, purely run the security and maintain the security of the blockchain. And this is sort of this intermediary where there are people involved in this who are not, who are involved sort of with Polygon, but not necessarily working for Polygon, who have an interest in the roadmap of Polygon to implement these security changes to follow the kind of governance for this, but also be there in the event that something happens. Because ultimately, layer twos and these rollups, they're fairly new networks. So they don't have the ability to control themselves right now. It's too nascent. There's too much of a risk to have some kind of bug. And that's why there's this, as one person I interviewed said, there's this lesser evil step that they need to take, which is creating these councils so that there can be that kind of backup in the event that something big to the protocol happens in terms of its security. You, you mentioned something interesting in your piece around like just broadly, the inconsistency that you have between these different implementations of a protocol council of a security council. 
So mm-hmm. obviously, like you just said, like this is a weird sort of a system where you have these, you know, decentralized code based systems that are governed by human beings at key mm-hmm. parts of the chain. So it's like, it doesn't matter if the rest of it is decentralized. Ultimately, if these 12 or however many people in some cases control a multi-sig address that has control over the funds that bridge things from one project to another, like maybe to, to get a little bit more specific, one specific thing that I thought was crazy about your piece that you know I want to write more about soon with one of our colleagues, Danny Nelson, is like optimism. Their protocol council is, they have this setup where it's anonymous and a lot of protocols do this with regards to who actually has the um, key controlling the multi-sig for the optimism bridge. Um, so this is mm-hmm. one of the biggest protocols in crypto. There's random people that we, I mean, they're not random, but we don't know who they are, who control things. Yeah. They say that's for security, but you know, not only are we trusting humans, but we're trusting humans who we don't know who they are. There's definitely an inconsistency. And I briefly mentioned that in the piece, and this is something definitely that you should get more digged a hole into because I'm, I was, when I was writing this, I was trying to figure out who uh, from the optimism side and they call it a security council. Arbitrum also has one. They like these names are sort of all over the place, but they all basically do the same thing: protocol and security mm-hmm. council. And so the optimism one, yes, they say we we don't share how many people are on this security council, and we also don't share their identities because in the you know to protect the security of the network. Polygon, on the other hand, is saying something differently. They're saying, look, we are all public figures. You know who we are, and there's there's thirteen of them. Someone I spoke to is the creator of ECC in Paris. So that's that's a pretty public figure. The other one is someone that does a lot of the security audits for Polygon and also some of these layer twos to have. And they and they said specifically that they chose to release their identities because they want to give credibilities and that in the mm-hmm. event that something happens, they can hold them accountable or that the the ecosystem can sort of trust these people. So it is interesting to see sort of yeah. like who these people are. Another thing that is like needs to be explored a little bit is that sometimes on some of these councils, there are multiple of the same people. Like Justin Drake is on from the Ethereum Foundation is on the Polygon one. And I believe I believe he's on another one. And I believe it's Arbitrum, but I could I be think wrong. It's the Arbitrum one, if so, I remember. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, you would hope that Justin Drake is and I, I haven't spoken to Justin Drake about this, but like in theory, you would hope that he's smart enough to have different keys for or put them in different places. But maybe someone makes a human error and mistake and they get hacked or their keys lost. There's always always that. Do you remember Danny had that story, one of our colleagues last week, where there was a DAO. I mean, this is a little bit of a a, a side, you know, um, sidetrack from what we're talking about currently. But like there was a DAO that held, you know, a a, a bunch of treasury funds in a multi-sig that was configured in such a manner or didn't have a flip switched in in such a manner that allowed for only one of 12 of the multi-sig signers, usually you need a majority, that's the point of a multi-sig, <laughs> only one of 12 people could sign off and move all the funds. So one of those 12 was like, oh, oh, I, I can just take this money. And, and they oh did. Oh my God. Um, oh one of my 12 God. multi-sig. It, it's pretty, pretty hilarious. What's but the yeah. point of a multi-sig anyway, then? Yeah. None. Yeah. Um, there, there's literally no point, but, uh, but it is funny. Um, yeah. It's sad. Trust everybody. Um, yeah. Trust but... everybody. Um, <laughs> Well, Margo, that was such a cool story. I mean, I it's it's like I feel like some of these, you know, the layer twos, they kind of move in herds sometimes. You know, they're all, all you know, they did the blockchain in the box all at the same time, and now they're doing these security councils. But there's to your point, there's always some differences in how they do it, right? Yeah, it really. I mean, it really also depends on. I think they all have like a sub like a subculture. These layer twos, and so they yeah. sort of stick to that as well. Yeah. And you know, I don't see any of 
optimism maxis going after optimism for their anonymous security council and polygon maxis are probably happy with what's going on with with the polygon security council so right. or protocol yeah. council i'm getting them mixed up yeah. too but you, you, yeah. get, you get the gist so i mean yeah. so, these things yeah. defined right they weren't a few years ago a couple of years yeah. ago that you started seeing these things you actually at least for the first time i mean it gave people a reason a thing to scrutinize because they actually define their security practices but oftentimes what happened was the security un- until again a couple of years ago would be held like in the case of Arbitrum, in the Arbitrum Foundation, it would just be them, control, or um, you know, in off-chain labs rather, the developing firm that created mm-hmm. this this infrastructure. Giving an mm-hmm. example, I don't actually know if that's how it worked in that specific case, but anyway, at least you see that they're doing things in such a manner as to try mm-hmm. to decentralize things further. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, that is a fascinating discussion. Let's wrap it up there. When we come back, we've got Riyadh Wabi co-founder and CEO of Cubist. Uh, He's also on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon. And I spoke with him a couple uh, months ago and it was a great discussion. So we've got him coming up and uh, talking about some of these same issues actually in terms of various uh, security aspects. We'll be right back. Have a blockchain project idea and need funding to make it happen? Look no further. The Stellar Community Fund is here to help bring your project to life on the Stellar Network. This year alone, over $10 million in XLM awards have been allocated across more than 100 innovative projects. And your idea could be next. Approved project submissions can receive up to $100,000 in XLM per project. So head over to communityfund.stellar.org to get started. Calling all developers. Score a consensus 2024 developer pass for just $109, but act fast. Only a limited number of these passes are available. You may have heard that consensus ain't for devs, but here's why you're wrong. Consensus is the only place you can fully immerse yourself in a multi-chain environment and learn directly from 20-plus chains, including Arbitrum, Chainlink, Solana, and more. Enjoy three days of intensive learning with technical talks, 40-plus expert speakers, and 20-plus in-depth workshops, including dedicated half-days for Ethereum and Bitcoin, and three full days of programming on our Protocol Village stage. Consensus 2024 is happening May 29th through 31st in Austin, Texas. Don't miss your chance to network at Curated Developer Meetups, find new career opportunities, and explore hundreds of side events and hacker houses around town. Grab your $109 developer pass today, but remember, this exclusive offer is limited. Visit consensus.coindesk.com now to secure your developer pass before they're gone. Explore the epicenter of blockchain innovation at Consensus 2024. Okay, we're back here with Riyad Wabi, co-founder and CEO of Cubist. Cubist is a developer of hardware-backed non-custodial key storage and signing infrastructure that enables companies to protect staking keys and secure withdrawals. It sounds, it's quite a mouthful as a lot of these things are, Riyad. But, uh, you know, Riyad is also, by the way, 
great at explaining things because he is a, a, a professor. Uh, in this case, he is on the electrical and computer engineering faculty at Carnegie Mellon University. And he's been around in academia a lot, but is also an entrepreneur here. Riyadh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really uh, looking forward to the chat. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're looking forward to All right. I was thinking about how we could get into this, Riyadh, and I thought it might be good if, you know, two minutes, three minutes, like make it quick, but try to orient people in terms of kind of like top of the, you know, crypto taxonomy, blockchain, and then homing in on exactly the problem that y'all are focusing on. Yeah. So, you know, in some sense, maybe this is one way to think about it, let's say, is actually like keys are kind of everything, right? Like every time you interact with a blockchain, what are you doing? Well, you find you interact with a node, et cetera. But if you want to actually have an effect on the world, you have to generate a signature and post it, right? Like that's kind of the fundamentals, right? And so in some sense, like that's your interface to the whole world. And so there's a lot of leverage there, um, but there's also, of course, a lot of danger. And we've seen, I, I think in the prior segment, there was a big discussion about like, well, well, how do you manage the keys? And our perspective on this is that, you know, there are a lot of things that individuals and companies can do to improve their security posture just by thinking about like, what is it that my keys should do? What should they be able to do? What shouldn't they be able to do? And so being able to, you know, in some sense say, look, this key has certain things that it can do. And then everything else will just be ruled out by, say, the hardware or by, you know, some system that lives around the key that, that kind of just protects it and makes sure that it can only be used for the right things. So you can think about doing a lot of different things with that. You know, if it's your wallet, you could say, look, I know that today I'm only going to be trading, you know, with a couple, uh, let's say a couple, I'm going to hit a couple DEXs. No other transactions should be allowed. Okay. If it, zooming out, you know, if I'm doing some kind of trading strategy, well, I can sort of build a model for like, what are the trades going to look like? What are those transactions going to look like? And then my, my key can actually enforce, like you're actually making a transaction that is consistent with what you said your trading strategy was. And then you mentioned validators. This is a big area where we've been putting a lot of thought. And there, I, I think for a lot of folks in the Ethereum ecosystem, for example, basically, if you're running a validator, the thing that you're most worried about is, am I going to get slashed, right? Because that's, that's kind of the disaster scenario. In some sense, getting slashed is just a matter of like signing the wrong message. I mean, forget in some sense, that is it. Like if you sign the wrong message, you get slashed. If you don't sign the wrong message, you don't get slashed. So if you can somehow say, well, look, this key knows this message is bad and this message is good and it'll only sign the good one. I mean, maybe that sounds silly. Maybe it sounds like too reductive, but in fact, you can do that. Like the slashing condition for Ethereum is actually pretty simple. And it's something that your key in some uh, vague sense can enforce on its own. And so that's the system that we've built. We've built a system where you can actually just build the policies into the key. And so for folks who are doing things like validation, what that means is they can just have confidence that even if everything else goes off the rails, even if they mess up their infrastructure, even if their client has a bug in it, which is something that we've seen in the Ethereum ecosystem, and I think we're going to continue to see, especially with restaking coming on, even if all of those kind of disaster scenarios happen, as long as your key is sort of making the right decisions about whether it should or shouldn't sign something, you're safe. Um, and so this is fundamentally the, the kind of approach that we're taking. And and just, again, to help to ground us, you know, tell us exactly, like, who is your customer, generally speaking? Is there a particular ecosystem you're focused on? And, and what do you do for those customers? So I, I'd say, yeah, when we're talking about validation, our focus has up till now been primarily in the Ethereum ecosystem and uh, sort of by extension in the kind of restaking ecosystem growing up around it. So, you know, we announced last year a partnership with Eigenlayer. We've been really kind of thinking hard about 
how to secure AVSs, how to make operators confident uh, in that as they enter that ecosystem. Uh, we're also working with the folks at Babylon. So that's uh, sort of an interesting twist on restaking, um, you know, staking Bitcoin uh, through a really cool piece of technology. So we're, we're working closely with them. We've announced a partnership there too. So on the, on the validation side, that's our, our primary focus. So you've mentioned this restaking thing um, a, a few times, maybe to ground our listeners. You said Eigenlayer specifically. This is one of these protocols that's popped up, the main one you know, that, that comes to mind over the past couple of years. That lets people take the, the Ethereum, in the case of Eigenlayer, that they've staked, or the Ether, rather, that they've staked on the Ethereum network and use it to not only help now secure Ethereum, but to secure other networks, other protocols. There's a lot of risks with that, which is kind of what you're nodding to with this whole idea of, you know, key security when it comes to restaking. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, first off, what those risks are? Why are people kind of concerned about this? Vitalik Buterin being one, the idea that Ethereum itself should just be kind of like one network doing one, you know, sort of um, uh, thing security wise. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about what those risks are. Yeah, there are a bunch of different risks, and it depends on which perspective you're taking, which risks you're thinking about. So uh, Vitalik's uh, take on this, I mean, he, he's got a very nuanced take on this and obviously knows a ton about the what's going on. But his take is essentially like, how do we protect the Ethereum ecosystem from you know, other ugly stuff that could happen, right? And what kind of ugly stuff could happen? Well, you know, if there's some kind of event where a bunch of people have restaked, then, you know, that you could imagine some kind of, and, and I mean, very hypothetically, some kind of, uh, you know, contagion type event where, you know, one bad event in the restaking ecosystem sort of ramifies in the, in the Ethereum staking layer, right? A bunch of people get slashed for stuff that doesn't really have to do with Ethereum. It has to do with the restaking. So, that's yeah. I mean, that's obviously something so it's to like worry leverage, about. Almost right. It's like you're yeah, levering exactly. up your exposure or the exposure of the Ethereum protocol. Exactly right. So if I'm an operator, that's basically what I'm doing. When I'm operating as a restaking operator, I, I I stake my Ethereum, and then I say, well, look, since I've staked the Ethereum, I also want to you know participate in this other network that basically gets its security from the fact that I've staked Ethereum. And so now, if I mess up in the sort of secondary network that can have ramifications for my stake in Ethereum, right? So there's an interesting thing here, and this is like now on the, on the technical risk side, Eigenlayer defines these, these entities called AVSs. These are uh, mm -hmm. uh, autonomously validated services. And the idea there is each of these AVSs is, or actively validated, sorry, I made a mistake there. Each of these services is essentially developing their own uh, consensus protocol where the stake that they're using to sort of have people participate in the proof of stake is at least partially derived from Ethereum stake. So there's, there's sort of this derivative uh, of Ethereum stake, and that is what gives you, uh, you know, the ability to, to validate in these, in these services. So those AVSs can define their own slashing conditions, right? So in Ethereum, if you double sign or if you do a surround sign, you know, there are these kind of technical conditions for what constitutes slashing. And Ethereum has, you know, designed their system so that you get slashed if you do things that are really bad for the Ethereum consensus. AVSs can do the same thing. They can say, you know, here's the, 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 the set of conditions under which you would get slashed. And some of those are completely or, you know, uh, isomorphic to the ones in Ethereum. Like, mm -hmm. You know, if you're running a consensus protocol, you might say double signing, you get slashed. You can dream up basically anything you want, right? So you can come up with some crazy uh, condition like, well, you know, if 50% of the validators go offline, all the validators get slashed, which seems nuts. But like, Somebody might opt into that if it paid mm -hmm. them enough. They might say, well, we're going to take the risk, right? And I'm not saying that I, this is always going to happen or that this is likely to happen. But the worry is that somehow you get a bunch of these AVSs 
that you know all have these kind of weird slashing conditions, it becomes really hard to reason about what happens in some bad event. And then suddenly the bad event occurs. And now in like, I think the concern, again, I'm not saying that this is likely, is that somehow that that affects the underlying security, the security of, of Ethereum. What is the somehow? I think that's like the missing piece for a lot of us. I yeah. mean, the answer is like complex systems fail in complex ways. So you might worry that like, well, you know, one AVS gets slashed, but there's a big overlap between the operators in this AVS and another one. And then suddenly that second AVS kind of also ends up with some slashing conditions. And now maybe a third AVS ends up, right? So you can get this kind of contagion from mm-hmm. one AVS to another if you set things up wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that kind of high risk scenario, now suddenly you've got a bunch of operators who are also Ethereum operators who are suddenly being you know, penalized for their behavior that has nothing to do with Ethereum. And so if that ripples back into Ethereum, now we have to worry that somehow uh, you know, Ethereum is trying to set up its own set of incentives, but those incentives have nothing to do with the incentives in the AVSs that live on top. And so at yeah. least in principle, you could have problems. It's almost like analogous to like the whole Terra thing that we saw a couple of years ago. Um, where in a completely different way, you had this like system somewhere that had all these weird conditions that were, you know, inflating the value or whatever of this of this asset that was then being used to secure and run and and power a bunch of other things somewhere else. It ended up crashing everything all the way to institutions, to FDX um, and and everything that relied on it. So, you know, it, it's just one more of those things that we see so much in finance and in particular in crypto. We're sitting here and we're talking a lot about the risks that are associated with restaking and in all the innovations and protocols that are coming out of restaking on, on Eigenlayer or, or, you know, setting up an AVS. I'm wondering, like, in your view, this whole restaking ecosystem that's emerging, is this something that is viable or is this something that is not a trend, but just like a hot thing that's happened like i don't farming. i want to use it. yeah yeah like, like is, is this just a, it's just like like why does restaking need to be a thing or why is restaking needed for blockchains if if it is at all i think first of all it absolutely is viable like we've been talking about risks because i mean you know it's important to assess them sure but i think there's absolutely huge upsides so one huge upside of the restaking ecosystem is that it provides you kind of a base layer on which to build new technology where you're not reinventing the wheel. So, you know, the the restaking ecosystem gives you kind of the fundamentals of if I want to have a proof of stake chain, I need to find people who are going to opt in, I need to have them run a validator, I need to make sure that all of that kind of stuff works. And so all of that infrastructure is basically there for you. And now you can focus on the thing that you're doing that's bringing the new piece, the new the new interesting stuff to the ecosystem. So, I think what we're going to see is that this unlocks a lot of innovation. It's going to mm-hmm. you know, we're going to see people who are coming up with like very interesting kind of crazy things where they've been able to focus just on the new piece, just on the thing that, they've, that they're bringing to the table and not on kind of reinventing the wheel. So I think that's the reason to be super optimistic about this. Mm-hmm. The question in terms of the design principle of designing things, you know, A, for failure, or B, assuming that there's malicious actors out there, right? And if there is a way that People can do bad things, they will, you know, but I mean, here we're talking about using as a validator, using these anti-slashing, you know, mechanisms to avoid getting slashed. But some people might not take those precautions or use those systems, right? And so how do you build a system that can withstand those people who don't do it? Yeah, great question. So I think this, so first of all, I think the standard answer to you know, how do we like how do we withstand people who are just gonna 
whatever it might be. Maybe it's not that they're malicious necessarily, but that they, you know, they're trying to run at the absolute lowest cost. They're trying to cut every corner, just trying to, you know, make yield without putting, you know, much right. thought into it. I think, first of all, that's the biggest risk, right? Like the incentives are make the money, you know, kind of YOLO. And <laughs> right. I, I mean, it really, right? So honestly, the answer is that on top of all of this, like on, on top of this formal system of, you know, machines interacting in a way that's specified by a protocol, we're going to have informal systems of information uh, and maybe more formal ones eventually too. But basically what you're going to see is something similar to today. When somebody says, I want to invest in a liquid staking protocol, I mean, the very first thing that people say is, well, here are the three that you should think about because they're the ones that have the best reputation. They're the obvious one. We're going to have a similar reputation system uh, for the broader restaking ecosystem. So, you know, if I'm going to put money into an operator, I'm going to presumably choose an operator that gives me the right balance of risk and reward. Right? Obviously, there are going to be some people who are super conservative, only going into the very lowest risk things. And presumably, you know, those operators will see a lot of uh, traffic. But there are other operators who will be very clear, we're going to go into riskier ABSs, we're going to give you more yield as a result. That's great. That's the kind of risk you want to take. The kind of risk you don't want to take is the operator doesn't care, messes up, does things badly, and that's why I lose money, right? Like you're not getting paid for, to. I mean, the operator's getting paid more to cut corners, but probably you're not getting more yield because you went with an operator who cut corners, or at least not much more. So making sure that people have, can make this informed decision, like this operator is doing the right thing, they're, t they're, they're taking the right approach to their infrastructure, they're you know, actually trying to prevent slashing and mistakes and all this kind of thing. That's going to be important for people who are actually putting their money in. And so I think what we're going to see is this information ecosystem. We're already seeing folks talking about restaking risk, how we can categorize these things, how we can you know, build insurance products and other kind of derivative products on, you know, based on the risk from the operators. And so I think a lot of that kind of thing, as, we, as that grows up in the ecosystem, will kind of drive money towards quality. Now, if I can ask a completely different kind of question, you're, you know, on the faculty at a very esteemed university, particularly when it comes to discipline of computer science and computer engineering, which is where you work. I wonder from your perch there, have you noticed engineering students, computer scientists, programmers still moving to blockchain tech and still working at blockchain crypto companies? Have you seen the move instead towards AI? What's the trend looked like over the past few years? Yeah, I mean, first of all, absolutely the answer is tons of students are still extremely interested in this. But that's true of AI too, right? And, and to be clear, like CMU has a fantastic AI department and literally an entire department. The answer is, I think we see kind of a huge push towards both. My PhD advisor uh, was Dan Bonet at Stanford. Uh, and he taught one of the, I think, one of the first like classes on sort of blockchain Very technology. famous in the crypto world. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Dan's fantastic. I love Dan. I used to ask him about this, like, hey, how does, how does the uh, enrollment for this class go? And he says, well, you know, it kind of tracks a little bit the price of Bitcoin. As Bitcoin goes up, more people enroll in the class, like year to year. I mean, that's hilarious. But I think it's, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's true, right? Like, that's a measure of opportunity. Unfortunately, it's a trailing yeah. measure, right? So like the people who went in in 2021 and then graduated in 2022, like maybe saw a little uh, shock. But like on a, on a serious note, I'd say there's a ton of interest in computer security, cryptography, all of the kind of elements that go into uh, building in blockchains. And then on top of that, there are a lot of students who are super like undergrads who are like super advanced at writing smart contracts, you know, building DeFi protocols. I mean, it's kind of amazing. So yeah, I'd say super strong interest. And what we're starting to see now is a convergence. People talking about, you know, how can I use ML and blockchain together? You know, whether it's, uh, you know, ZKML 
or whether it's right, this kind of thing. So I, I think that's an exciting future where we have people who are kind of crossing the streams and, and really kind of putting together some interesting stuff we haven't imagined yet. We got to probably wrap it up here, Riyadh, and this has been fascinating, but we've talked about this and we've already, we've talked about doing the story. We haven't done it, but how do you, as this, you know, entrepreneur in this crazy world, you know, that we're covering and that you're working in and it's, you know, so fast moving and so much information and there's so much to do. How do you juggle that? running this company with being a professor like is there is there a secret there like you're not really teaching that much or like how does it, <laughs> how do you make it work or how does that work generally speaking okay so i, I am actually teaching a, an undergraduate course this semester in okay. in, in prior semesters i've, I've uh, what's I the course i'm just curious uh, computer security you know, okay. The, okay. The, yeah okay yeah which is a fantastic yeah. course it's it's super fun um i think the students really love it honestly the answer is a little less sleep, uh, a little bit of uh, <laughs> a little bit of um, working smarter, not harder. I mean, trying to you know be as productive as possible. And there's a lot of synergy here. So, like a lot of the time when I'm thinking about a research question, you know, I can also kind of in the back of my head, there's something that's very closely related, maybe on the technical side in the company. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of times when I can kind of get a little more bang for the buck just by kind of thinking a little smarter. That said, like at the bottom, you know, more work, you just, I think the only thing you can do is sleep a little less, drink a little more coffee. I feel like <laughs> there's one key thing that you maybe forgot to mention, which is grad students. Like they, they must play a role in some way, I would guess, right? Teaching assistants. Um, yeah. The, yeah. So shout out to the TAs. Of our, our head TA in particular this semester, is she's fantastic. My grad students are amazing. They're extremely productive and they're just like totally like they're doing such a great job. I'm sure that they wish that they like had a little more of my time and I'm sorry to them, but they are like really honestly doing fantastic work. And I mean, that's one of the, honestly, that is kind of the major benefit of being at a place like CMU. The grad students are, and the undergrads are kind of unparalleled. I, I count myself lucky that, that we have such great students. Riyadh, thank you so much. I mean, fascinating discussion. We'd love to have you back at some point. Thanks for having me. This has been uh, super fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Well, that is a wrap for this week's The Protocol Podcast. Thank you, Riyadh, for joining us. Thank you for listening to The Protocol Podcast. If you have any questions about any stories or comments, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Protocol. You can listen to us weekly on Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol on Coindesk.com, where we did actually have, I think, Riyadh, your story about, the story I read about Cubist was featured in The Protocol newsletter a couple of months ago. But anyway, all right. See you next week. Thanks a lot.